Welcome to Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio with author, speaker, and your host, Pat Rulo, serving you a generous helping of everything you need to know to help you and your loved ones stay safe during any doctor or hospital visit. And now, your host, Pat Rulo. Hello and welcome. I'm Pat Rulo, the voice for patient safety. I'm so happy you've taken the time to join me. And today, I have lots to share with you. So, let's dig right in, shall we? Today, I'm sharing something that has weighed heavy on my heart since the beginning of the coronavirus lockdown. And that has to do with nursing homes. Nursing homes have become ground zero for this virus. They are akin to the Twin Towers during 911. The coronavirus has caused long-term care facilities serving older and disabled people who are among the most vulnerable to the pandemic to pull the curtains and lock the doors. Following regulators' guidance, family members, volunteers, and the long-term care ombudsman, whose job it is to advocate for residents' rights and help them to resolve any complaints, have generally been forbidden from facilities since mid-March. Visits from state surveyors who check that nursing homes are complying with federal regulations have been halted. Regulators have also waived a host of nursing home rules, including, under certain circumstances, the requirement that facilities give residents and family members advance notice before transferring residents from one facility to another. So what's going on behind closed doors? We have no clue. I shouted about this to my television when they announced all of this. I predicted more deaths due to the lack of family oversight than deaths due to the coronavirus. Although with the oddly skewed tracking that's going on, we will never hear about people who actually died from medication errors, bed sore, infections, falls, dehydration, malnutrition, and out-and-out abuse. And I just have to mention, on March 24th, Governor Cuomo in New York said, my mother is not expendable, your mother is not expendable, and yet, the very same day he signed an executive order mandating that nursing homes, where our most vulnerable mothers and our most vulnerable fathers reside, he demanded that they accept COVID-positive patients. That's right, New York and New Jersey both ordered nursing homes to admit patients regardless of their COVID-19 status. Interestingly, Health Commissioner Howard Zucker said that under the state's policy, if you are positive, you should be admitted back to a nursing home. The necessary precautions will be taken to protect the other residents there, he said during Cuomo's daily coronavirus briefing. Zucker was also asked to explain how the policy could be justified, given how state officials have repeatedly said how quickly the virus can spread and how vulnerable nursing home residents are to COVID-19. He said, and that's why we're working closely with the nursing home leadership and the individuals who are working in the nursing homes to protect those individuals who are coming back who have had COVID-19. He also said the decision to withhold the names of nursing homes was based on privacy concerns linked to the federal HIPAA Accountability Act of 1996. Well, that's kind of a ridiculous argument because there are numerous HIPAA exceptions that allow 
covered entities to release even protected health information. So that information should have been made public so that families and patients would know where outbreaks were and where they were not. Does any of this make any sense to you? I mean, the question should be, should we be forced to introduce a disease with such deadly potential into a population that has been sheltered and who we know are vulnerable? Well, I'm digressing, I know, but let me continue to wonder. The health crisis presents nursing home operators with a potential financial upside. Now, I'm not saying in any way that any particular nursing home would even explore this, but it is a bit of a conflict of interest. Patients with COVID-19 could be worth more than four times what homes are able to charge for long-term residents with relatively mild health issues. Some fear that the premium pay available for coronavirus patients and the simultaneous easing of regulations around the transfers could tempt some home operators to move out low-paying residents to bring in more. A new Medicare reimbursement system that went into effect last fall pays nursing homes substantially more for new patients, including those released from a hospital, particularly for the first few weeks. So under those guidelines, COVID-19 patients can bring upwards of $800 per day. By contrast, facilities collect as little as $200 per day for long-term patients with dementia. Now, nursing homes have always had a financial incentive to attract the short-term patients and get rid of low-paying long-term ones, but the health risks for existing residents and staff are so high with COVID-19, I would hope that these nursing homes aren't just jumping to the head of the line for this. Health systems across the country are scrambling for safe places to quarantine nursing home residents with the coronavirus to try to protect those who haven't already been infected. So to that end, health departments have been looking to set up separate so-called COVID-19 positive nursing homes to help deal with the crisis. Well, thinking back to what went on in New York and, and the many, many people who died in nursing homes because they were allowed to go back there, well, isn't that exactly what Trump did for New York? Didn't he help to deal with the crisis by setting up separate so-called COVID-19 positive locations? I mean, they reconfigured the Javits Center they brought in the Navy ship to the New York Harbor, yet this giant floating hospital ship, even though it was retrofitted with new ventilation systems, they only saw 179 cases. Well, sorry, that's a topic for another time. Now, nursing homes, over 2 million people live in roughly 45,000 nursing homes and assisted living or other residential care communities, which employ over 1.2 million nursing and social workers, according to a 2019 report from the National Center for Health Statistics. Sadly, oversight varies among facility types. Nursing homes participating in Medicare and Medicaid must comply with federal rules, while assisted living facilities are largely regulated by the states. But in all types of facilities, family members, volunteers, and other outside visitors play a very critical role in spotting problems and ensuring residents' well-being. While many in the industry are doing an incredible job, the rule waivers, the diminished inspections, the reduced oversight from family, and the chronic understaffing in long-term care facilities may be a toxic combination because there's a lot of neglect in nursing homes in the best of times, and these are not the best of times. And I have had first-hand experience with that 
as my mom rehabilitated in three different rehab slash nursing home facilities. And I was there every single day for breakfast, lunch, dinner, after hours, in the middle of the night. And what I saw on many occasions left me feeling sick, especially sick for those who had no oversight from family members. Little tiny women and men all slumped over in their wheelchairs in the dining room with no one to help them eat. So guess what? They didn't eat. I was there with my mom to make sure she got her food, that it was somewhat healthy and appropriate. I jumped up and down to get her hot tea, dessert, more pepper, a spoon. And I watched as many of the other residents simply did not eat. They couldn't reach the dish. They couldn't negotiate the fork. Now I helped as much as I could, and I complained to the staff. Alice didn't eat. Oh well, we're short-staffed. She'll get a snack later. Yeah, right. Later was always a disaster. On the few occasions when I couldn't be there, my mom would have to sit in the TV area for three hours, four hours after dinner before someone would bring her to her room. And when they did, they hurriedly got her in bed. No call button, lights on, door open, no covers. How do I know? Well, sometimes she was able to call me, but others because I popped in at all hours to find out what was going on. 10 o'clock, midnight, 3 in the morning, 5 a.m. How about this story? On one occasion, when my mom was discharged from the hospital, she went to a local facility to rehabilitate. Rehab was on one side and the nursing home on the other. I was there every day for four weeks. During the first week, I asked her every morning, has the staff doctor been in to see you? No, she told me. The next day, has the staff doctor seen you? No. Day after day, so I brought this concern to the head RN, and she said, Oh, yes, the doctor has been in to see her every day. Really? What time does he usually make his rounds, I asked. Oh, about six in the morning. Okay. So the next morning, I was there before six. Six-thirty. Seven, eight, nine, ten. No doctor. Another nurse was at the desk that day. I asked, has the doctor been in to see my mom? She looked at the computer. Yes. Okay, I said, I am requesting a staff and a family meeting. And I didn't say why. Two days later, Bob and I wheeled my mom into a tiny room and met with the administrator and the PR person and a nurse and a couple other people. I can't remember who they were. And I asked the question, has the staff doctor examined my mom? Yes, they said. Oh, really? My mom says that no doctor has been in to see her. To which the administrator had the audacity, and I must say ignorance, to respond under her breath. Your mom probably just doesn't remember. My mom nearly leaped out of her wheelchair. Are you saying I don't know what's going on? She demanded. Now, mind you, my mom had quite an issue with her heart, but certainly not with her head or her mind. And that's when I lost it. Let me see her chart. I want to see exactly when he was in and what he wrote. And that's when the nurse looked around the room, as if asking for permission, and she blurted out, The doctor has been on vacation. He's not due back until next Tuesday. So there you have it people out and out lying right up to the point of a family meeting. Lying. 
Then there's the time when my mom once again was put to bed without a call button. She called me on the phone to let me know, so I called the facility to ask someone to please go to her room to pin the call button to her sheet. I called and called and called and I called. No one answered. Moments before I got in my car to go over there in person, I called one more time. The gal who answered the phone advised me that she was the only one there and the portable phone didn't work. So this was on a good day. One person for what, 50 people? Do you think it got any better during the coronavirus lockdown? I highly suspect not. Here's a comment from a doctor. She said, closely quartered residents with multiple comorbidities cared for by minimum wage staff and lower echelon medical providers in the setting of for-profit institutions? What could possibly go wrong? Several years ago, I tried a couple of months doing some nursing home rounds as an MD as an adjunct to my emergency medicine practice. The standard of care in all the facilities was rather low, and I couldn't continue in good conscience to continue. Now, am I saying this happens in all nursing homes? Absolutely not. But I was in three, and it happened in three. All I know is from my experience. Abuse in nursing homes. The number of abuse violations cited in nursing home inspections more than doubled in a four-year period. And this is from the U.S. Government Accountability Office. One in five high-risk emergency room visits by nursing home residents result from potential abuse or neglect, according to a 2019 report from the Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General. Angela Chavu, a representative with the Georgia Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program, found herself peeking through the windows of a Richmond County, Georgia board and care home in early April. At the start of the month, she had received a disturbing report from a local hospital that had admitted a resident of the facility. The resident was an older woman, she had lost significant weight, and the hospital suspected neglect. Chavu previously had concerns about the facility, including the adequacy of the meals, cleanliness, and the quality of patient care. Given the COVID-19 restrictions, she couldn't visit, so when she called the facility, the number was disconnected. So after consulting with the state ombudsman, she went and knocked on the door. The awkward scene that followed underscores concerns about the COVID-induced separation between long-term care facilities and the outside world. Chavu talked with the residents, some of whom have dementia or physical disabilities, out on the front porch while maintaining her distance. They didn't raise any serious complaints, which is not surprising, she said, mostly because staff members hovered nearby. Chavu then peered through the windows, but she couldn't see residents' bedrooms or bathrooms. She did, however, note a strong odor of urine wafting through the door, she says. The fact that many long-term care residents can't speak for themselves leaves family members uneasy with some of the recent nursing home rule waivers. Centers for Medicare Services, for example, has said that facilities do not need to provide advance notification before transferring residents in certain situations, such as when the transfers are made to separate COVID-positive from COVID-negative residents. Some families are discovering that their loved ones have been moved only after the fact. I would say that people's rights are being suspended. 
Suspension of regular nursing home inspections mean that many other serious threats to residents' welfare may be overlooked. In March, CMS said that nursing home inspections would temporarily focus on just infection control and incidents cited as immediate jeopardy or the most severe level of violations. But the vast majority of nursing home health inspection violations are cited at less severe levels, and many involve serious harm to residents, including broken bones and medication errors. Now, do we really think that the ombudsman representatives pose any greater risk to the residents than do the healthcare workers at the facility? I mean, seriously, why ban the single ombudsman who can oversee the safety and welfare of the patients during a time like this? Uh, just wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance like everyone else. That generally leaves the ombudsman representatives on the outside trying to look in and trying to do their work remotely. When they try to reach the facility staff and the residents by phone, it is becoming increasingly difficult to even get through because the facilities are very stressed. Now, the New Jersey ombudsman says she had no early warning of the crisis building at the Andover Subacute and Rehab Center in Andover, New Jersey facility where the police said there were 17 bodies in mid-April. The facility owner, Chaim Scheinbaum, said in a statement that the current staffing is solid and that no more than 15 bodies were kept in a room with a normal capacity of four. Well, that kind of thing is happening now all across the country. It's just largely invisible. And here's what's interesting. They stated that it's unclear whether any of those 17 deaths in New Jersey, where the bodies were kept in a room, it's unclear whether any of those 17 deaths were due to the coronavirus. And hello, that's what I'm trying to say here. And as the crisis grinds on, some families are being denied even that window visit that provide the only possible face-to-face -face interaction with their loved ones. For example, Bayside Health and Rehab in Pocosin, Virginia, recently halted window visits to eliminate potential for disease spread by individuals congregating, and also given the fact that there's a stay-at-home order in effect in the state of Virginia. They're saying that families and residents should connect by phone, email, or text. Well, that's not much help to family members of the Bayside resident who was recently denied permission for a window visit. This person said that their family member got so confused by FaceTime and has trouble hearing phone calls. And so for many older people, electronic communication is not the same as seeing a face through the window. Every day, the number of deaths from COVID in elder care homes continues to climb around the globe. And it's not limited to the worst hit states like New York and Colorado. For instance, 60% of all coronavirus-related deaths in the state are from nursing homes. In Canada, half of the more deaths from coronavirus to date occurred in their long-term care homes. In Europe, nursing home deaths account for about 50% of COVID-19 fatalities. So when these restrictions went into place, it didn't just cut off a source of social support, it cut off a crucial amount of care. The other related problem is those same visitors were able to see if there were infection control problems, if their loved ones were getting ill and were not being taken care of. There's little question that providers tend to give more service toward residents who have family members who act as watchdogs for their loved ones. But if no one's in the building, so much for that. It's disappeared. One of the things that this epidemic has done is eliminated that layer of unofficial regulatory 
oversight. I mean, the deck just couldn't be more stacked against the resident. With family not being able to provide oversight and extra support in personal care, it's not only the virus that can lead to severe problems or death. We're hearing reports of malnourishment and dehydration, not out of disregard, but because the caregivers are being stretched beyond capacity. Staff members are burning out. What about the impact of social isolation, which can worsen cognitive decline in dementia patients? These poor souls who have cognitive impairment, they can't remember why the visits have stopped. Many of them are crying to their families. Was it something I did? What did I do wrong? Why can't you come and see me? The psychological toll of these missed family visits may never be quantified. So it's time to start thinking about long-term solutions. And here's what I have. Install a camera in every resident's room, three of them, one to cover the bed area, one in the bathroom area, and one in the room entrance, the doorway. Sync the camera to a family member's phone or iPad or computer, all with permission, of course, and I understand there's going to be legal ramifications to this, but nothing that can't be worked out. The family members can now see and hear everything that goes on when they cannot be there in person. When a nurse comes in with medication to deliver, when a doctor comes in to examine or share test results, they ping the system with an audible sound so the family member can tune in, ask questions, view the medication. Or, here's an easy one, make the TV screen in the room capable of video communication with the family members. Something like Zoom that everybody's using these days while quarantined to talk to and see family members. In this way, on the TV screen, the picture is large and viewable by the resident while lying in bed. Now they can see and hear and talk to family as if they were there. And who could pay for this, you might ask? Well, the government seems to have a lot of discretionary and disposable funny money these days. Instead of diverting crisis money and stimulus money to fund the Kennedy Center and the arts, which, by the way, gave me such peace. I mean, every night all I prayed for was that the Kennedy Center received funding. Are you kidding me? Funding the arts during a health crisis? Are people crazy? Anyway, let the government pay for surveillance. They seem to do well with those kind of spying projects right up their alley. Does this send the message to the staff that you don't trust them? Uh, yeah. And what's wrong with that? Why should you trust a group of people you've never met to take care of your loved one in the same manner as you yourself would take care of that person? Mom and I had a special relationship with one of the RNs at one of the rehab facilities. She was honest with us, listened to us, made sure things were right. After a few weeks, she suddenly, she was no longer there. I inquired from another employee whom I managed to become friends with, and she told me on the down low that our favorite nurse was fired for stealing patients' drugs. Would I have ever guessed that about her? No. We trusted her, and look what that got us. I had another occasion to come face to face with what is called drug diversion. When prescription medicines are obtained or used illegally, it is called drug diversion, and healthcare providers who steal prescription medications or controlled substances such as opioids for their own use clearly put patients at risk. Published research has estimated between 8 and 12 percent of providers will divert drugs from patients at some point in their career. And according to this report, doctors and nurses are responsible for opioid diversion 67% of the time. How do they do it? 
by taking the wasted portion of the drug for personal use or removing excessive amounts of as-needed medications. Sometimes patients are only prescribed, say, a pain medication as needed. It's called PRN. Nurses can pull those to supposedly give to a patient and use it for their own purpose. Or they could just not administer the drug to the patient or administer a substitute substance to patients. Theft has also been linked to discarded syringes or ampules with opioids that have been properly disposed of in Sharp's safety containers. I know about this because the assistant anesthesiologist who was with my mom during her initial shoulder surgery that resulted in an undiagnosed heart attack for nine hours was shortly thereafter arrested and had his medical license suspended for stealing anesthesia drug waste. So I saw it twice, and who knows how much more was going on that I didn't see. And again, these were pre-COVID, where families were allowed to act as eyes and ears. God only knows what is going on now with no oversight. And what about bed sores? Nursing home residents are now confined to their rooms. They are not wheeled into the communal dining room areas or social rooms. So there they lay, with no one to look after the serious issue of skin integrity. I would love to know the real number of bed sore occurrences during this pandemic. It has to be astronomical. Will anyone ever find out? Probably not. Or what about C. diff or MRSA infections? What about the timely changing of catheters? Incontinence cleanup? What about dehydration? What about malnutrition? If Alice couldn't reach her food at the dining room table with six other people sitting around her and no one helped, what is going on in Alice's room as someone runs in with a meal tray, plops it on the tray table that's feet away from the bed, and scurries out? Is Alice eating? Well, cameras would let Alice's daughter or son or husband have the ability to alert a staff member or come crashing through a front door or window if need be. So until my solution becomes a reality, if you know of a person in a nursing home or a rehab facility, here are a few things you can do, short of barging in, which I tell you, if my mom were in that situation today, I would check myself in to be with her. Try to develop a constructive relationship with the staff. Try to communicate with them regularly to give you actual information on your how your loved one is doing. And this would be even more important if your loved one is in a home with a history of violations or accused of past cover-ups. Contact other families and form a consumer group. You're not alone. Every resident in one of those facilities has family in the same boat that you're in, and so reaching out to each other, not just for moral support, but to exchange information and band together and negotiate as a group. Demand weekly or even daily conference calls for updates. And use the phone. Family members should not give up on the other means of trying to communicate with their loved ones. Just speaking to you, to somebody, is so important to the resident, and it's a way to collect information. You can find out on that phone call whether they've been fed, whether the staff is coming in, or whether the COVID infection is spreading in the facility. You can also call your local health authority or ombudsman with complaints. Many elderly people are needlessly injured through inattentive or substandard care in nursing homes, especially now. Injuries from falls, improper restraints, careless administration of medication, bed sores, failure to recognize and treat life-threatening medical conditions are all too common. 
Even before the coronavirus appeared, as many as 380,000 people were dying of infections every year in long-term care facilities, according to the CDC. Some of that stems from the way nursing homes are operated. Typically understaffed, nursing homes can be places where making money or even just making it through a shift depends on cutting corners. Often when you think about nursing homes, we focus on doctors and nurses, but nursing homes rely on housekeepers, dietary workers, and others to keep their facilities operating. These workers are on the front lines of infection control, but they may make poverty level wages and not receive enough sick days or paid time, and there's often no one to replace them. That means sick employees show back up to work, or they're just simply short-staffed. My local newspaper shows how problematic this is. A nursing home nearby is advertising openings for every possible position, offering up to $7,000 as a signing bonus. Few nursing homes have full-time infection control specialists. Unless nursing homes fundamentally change the way they deliver care, Facilities will have a hard time marketing themselves post-COVID. So somebody contact Nancy Pelosi and suggest she allocate another trillion dollars to granny cams. Well, only after we fund the arts. No, you've been a good friend. I recently narrated and produced an audiobook for author Joni Dark Shepherd. The book is titled Rio, A Love Story, How My Dog Saved My Life. Most of you know that I was a caretaker for my mom for nearly a decade and also have been rescued by 13 cats, so Joni's book resonated. Her boundless love and commitment to both her mother and sister as they battled cancer was raw, real, and revealing. As the darkness of these times descended upon her, she discovered and allowed the love of her dogs, especially Rio, to light up her life. Joni Dark Shepherd and the honest portrayal of her journey left me crying, smiling, and feeling happy. And isn't that what a good book is supposed to do? A compassionate and passionate read. Get yourself a copy today. Visit Amazon.com or the website joanandrio.com. I guarantee it, you'll love the book, Rio, A Love Story, How My Dog Saved My Life. Visit joanandrio.com. Hi there, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, the host of Mrs. Green's World, and I personally invite you to become a part of our movement. We show up every day to help create the change we wish to see because we care deeply about this great planet of ours. The guests I interview inspire ways of living that are healthy, sustainable, and socially just. We discuss real issues by leveraging experts and science to get trustworthy information. Please visit our website at mrsgreensworld.com to learn more and to become a part of our world. Superbugs like MRSA live in hospitals and they infect thousands of patients. Stay safe with Hospital Helper Organic Essential Oil Spray. Headaches, nerve pain, anxiety, can't sleep? We've got solutions. Visit the shop page at speakupandstayalive.com. Patient safety is your right, so don't go wrong. Visit the shop page at speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com. All right, I'm done. I will see you again next week. Same time, same place, but never the same information. 
Until then, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week where you can think and speak up. I am Pat Rulo, and I am the voice for informed choice and patient safety. If you've missed part of today's show or just want to share the information with friends, you can listen to all of Pat's previous shows at speakupandstayalive.com. Want even more information? Purchase a copy of Pat's book at speakupandstayalive.com. Once again, it's speakupandstayalive.com. Or you can call Pat at 440-725-5462. Until next week, remember, it's okay to ask others to wash their hands. You have to speak up and stay alive.